You're listening to Global Health Voices, a podcast by the Singh Health Duke and U.S. Global Health Institute, and I'm your host, Amina Mahmood, Deputy Director of the Institute. In our first series on Global Health Trailblazers, we'll speak to a variety of guests who have well and truly made their mark in global health. Join me as we hear their inspirational stories as they share their journey. We'll talk about impactful moments throughout their prolific careers, their observations about global health, its evolution, and key issues of our time. We start our series with talking to Professor Michael Merson, who is the founding director of our very own institute in Singapore, as well as the Duke Global Health Institute in Durham, which he led for 10 years. Mike, thank you for being with us today. Knowing your current work under the Duke umbrella, I wanted to focus on your time with the World Health Organization, in particular, your time with the Global Program on AIDS, which you directed from 1990 to 1995. This program was responsible for mobilizing and coordinating the global response to the AIDS pandemic. Let's travel back to unpack the challenges faced during the AIDS pandemic and draw parallels to the global COVID-19 pandemic we are currently facing. I also want to discuss the North-South divide in the global health landscape and hear about the milestone challenges you navigated over the decades. Uh, First, let me say it's a pleasure to be with you for this first uh, podcast. Um, The world was unfortunately very slow to respond to the AIDS pandemic. Uh, The AIDS virus was discovered in 1983, two years after the first patient had been identified, and the WHO didn't have a program until 1986, so five years after the virus was discovered, before the world started to mobilize. So we were slow, and we faced uh, two great challenges. One was there was 10 years between infection and disease. So really, we didn't see a lot of illness to the early 1990s. And secondly, HIV is transmitted primarily through sexual intercourse, injecting drug use. These are taboo behaviors associated with stigma. So we faced a lot of denial and great reluctance for countries initially to uh, start programs. So as you built up this program, what were the kind of challenges you faced as the director of the program, someone who had to you know, bring in something new into, on an international scale? Well, first, we had to deal with the denial. We had to really demonstrate that HIV could be anywhere in the world. We needed to mobilize political leaders. We needed to get other organizations to take AIDS seriously. And as it was a fatal disease, we needed to work hard to develop drugs and vaccines to be able to stem this uh, pandemic. There were great challenges, again, because of the way HIV was transmitted. So we had to talk openly and frankly about the disease and its transmission. So you mentioned about the need for drugs, and I know, of course, I think it's now a kind of known story of the uh, issues around the pricing of the drugs that were initially, you know, in the global market. And basically, they were so high that only a very small proportion of people in high-income countries could access them. I also know kind of a little bit about the role of the Indian pharmaceutical companies, in particular CIPLA, who uh, made this big change and priced it at a lower point. Can you discuss that a little bit? And then maybe also start thinking about that in terms of today's crisis, you know, what's happening both with drugs, but maybe more with vaccines currently, and what parallels can we draw between these two different pandemics? We started to see the impact 
the effectiveness of antiretroviral drugs around 1995, but the price was $15,000 a year, which was way beyond what most countries in the world could afford. And this caused anger and great mobilization by civil society and advocacy groups. And in the year 2000, at a famous conference on AIDS in Durban, South Africa, people took to the streets and insisted that the price come down. And sure enough, shortly thereafter, the price came down dramatically to less than $100 a year. This was a great example of how people who are motivated and feel activated and want to make a change in the world can be successful. Now, how do we build on that today? I think what we've seen today with COVID is the incredible importance of political leadership. Those countries that have acted quickly and decisively and had trust of the population have been relatively successful in controlling COVID. But more than anything else, what we need now is what we had with HIV eventually, and that was global solidarity. And we see that in particular right now in the great divide on who is getting the new vaccines and who is not. And there's a serious need, as there was with the drugs back in the days of AIDS, there's now a, a similar need today in the area of vaccines to get access for everyone since COVID is everywhere and we are not going to be safe from COVID until everyone can get the vaccine and be protected. Another lesson we learned in AIDS was the importance of community mobilization and reaching people, getting them messages. And it's the same with COVID. We need population trusts, both to convey prevention messages on how to stay safe, wear a mask, social distancing. We also need community groups to convince people to take the COVID vaccine. We have a, a real challenge with vaccine hesitancy around the world, not just with COVID but with uh, many vaccines. And we need very much to get everyone to appreciate the importance of taking their vaccine. And then lastly, with AIDS, we always face the challenge of reaching out to vulnerable populations. Gay men, for example, people who are at increased risk of HIV infection, often women in many societies. And here too, as we've seen with COVID, there are clearly certain populations that are more likely to get infected and die from the illness. In the US in particular, we've seen this in African-American and Hispanic population. And so again, we need to deal with these disparities, face them head on, if we're going to control the pandemic. Yeah, I think those are great lessons we can learn from the past, and I hope people do pay heed to them. I think from what you were saying to me, it sounds like we really need both a top-down but also a bottom-up approach. We really need them to work together, you know, the political leadership, but then the community mobilization. So let's see how things unfold as we kind of... That's very important, actually, because today we see the COVID is mostly top-down and we need to have a bottom-up like we saw made a huge difference in, in HIV and AIDS. Yeah, exactly. So just changing kind of to a slightly broader view of things. You've been working in the field of global health for over four decades. How have you seen the field evolve and what kind of current trends appeal to you or you know you feel are the most important to highlight? Well, a few things come to mind. First, taking the longer view, uh, certainly over time, 
as countries around the world have had stronger economic development and their populations are living longer, we see the disease patterns becoming more and more similar around the world. For example, we see a lot more of the non-communicable diseases, heart disease and cancer, pulmonary lung disease in African countries and, and other low-income countries. We're also seeing now in the last few decades since AIDS, a lot more pandemics. We've had influenza, we've had Ebola, we've had now a number of coronaviruses, MERS, SARS, and now COVID. And these have come about because of the changes in our environment, our, our ecological situation, closer association of humans and animals in their environment, vectors. So this has been another change we've seen. From a uh, political standpoint, if you like, most recently, we are, are seeing a lot more and hearing a lot more from the voice, I would say the voices of those in, in lower middle income countries wanting to play more of a role in, in the field of global health, in defining curriculum, in uh, educational opportunities, in global governance decisions. This has come about very much in the United States and in the United Kingdom, particularly related to some of the concerns we've seen, great concerns around structural racism. And there's, a, there's really a feeling now that we must see global health in a true global context. There must be power sharing, if you like, between those with, in the so-called richer countries and in the so-called poorer countries. We need to share, we need to exchange ideas and really treat each other as partners as we move along in the field of global health. Yes, kind of well kind of read about all the what they call decolonizing global health. So you kind of bring these points right to the front of some of these conversations that are taking place, I think particularly on campuses. It's interesting to see how to bring those conversations into everyday practice of global health and really kind of see how can we move beyond the rhetoric and the acknowledgement of the problem to practical solutions. Uh, so in this kind of context of this discussion, maybe in your own experience of setting up a global health institute, you know, which you initially did in Duke, which is situated in Durham, North Carolina in the U.S., and worked mainly in Africa, and then contrast that with setting up the Singhealth Duke NUS Global Health Institute, which is situated in Singapore and working mainly in the neighboring ASEAN countries. So does this kind of uh, conceptualization of how to play out uh, the practice of global health make a difference to these locations, you know, how the, differently these two institutions are located? The, the Duke Global Health Institute started in 2006. So that's about now 15 years ago. And global health at that time was at its, pretty much at its infancy. The term global health really became used around the turn of the century. And so in those days, there had not been much progress in, in developing partnerships around the world between the institutions in the developed world and, and lower middle income countries. There had not yet been much in the way of research capacity. Global health educational programs were just getting off the ground. And there was Really, we would just be thinking about the Millennium Development Goals and realizing the importance of global health security, global health governance as a, the way of ensuring global health security, and the relative relationship, important relationship between health and socioeconomic development. So these were earlier days, 
and there was a, a need to be out in the field, develop partnerships as the field of global health grew. And we worked at Duke in a, in a real global context. We had partners all over the world, many in Africa, but also in Latin America and in Asia. I think the, the, the Singapore Institute only started two years ago, and we are working in a, in a region uh, of the world where it has been, for the most part, good, good um, social and economic development. The health problems of the countries are more or less similar. A disease like dengue, for example, is, has been prominent in many countries of the region. And there is more of a history of collaboration. There's more people that have been educated in the field of global health. So a lot of what we've been trying to do in Singapore is build on the partnerships that exist already, create strong collaborations, and around a common set of priorities the countries in our region face. Now, of course, we've also had to deal with a very acute onset pandemic, the COVID pandemic. But for the most part, the Asian countries have really done well, although we have some that are still struggling, like uh, Indonesia, for example, or Philippines. But I think there's a lot of sharing of lessons and a regional approach to COVID as there can be to many of the other health problems in the region. So we can think more in a regional context, build on partnerships that exist, and see Singapore as a one of a number of nations trying to improve the health of people living in the region. That brings to mind circling back to what we started talking about WHO, and maybe you can comment on the role of WHO. I know there's been some differing opinions about it, as well as other international organizations in this kind of climate that we are in today? Well, it's been a tough time for WHO, no question, uh, the last few years. It's been a tough time for multilateralism, with more and more countries uh, showing their own flag and seeing that as more important than having a collaborative, coordinated, a global solidarity approach to health and development. But I think certainly WHO was slow to respond to Ebola initially and has been rightfully criticized for not responding quickly enough. Although they responded pretty quickly, many feel they could have even responded more quickly to COVID. But I think we all realize that uh, WHO does a lot of really good things. And after all, it is made up of its member states, and it can only be as good as the governments and ministries of health want it to be. I think the most important thing for the future of WHO is that it take a hard look at the international health regulations, which in fact were revised a few years ago in response to Ebola. I think they've got to be more sharp in terms of reporting and in terms of accountability so that we don't let pandemics blow up if we can the way COVID has. I think we should not ever do what the U.S. did, which was to threaten withdrawing from WHO. Uh, we need to make the WHO as strong as it can be. And I can assure you from what I have heard that the current Biden administration is going to do that. So certainly there are a few reoccurring themes, you know, that are coming out. One is going back to, you know, what we talked about, the autumn up and the top-down approach. So even in the context of organization's responsibility, it's both from within the organization, but then also from the surrounding partners and in fact, component partners. So where does the responsibility live? 
But I see that we are running out of time. So I would like to ask you, do you want to end with a message for anyone and maybe especially students? Because I know you hold students very dear to your heart. So what do you have a message for them entering the field of global health? Well, my message is, is really pretty simple. And that is, there's never been a more exciting time to enter the field of global health. We've seen from COVID the importance of health and economic development. We've seen the importance of prevention. We've seen the importance of the need to strengthen health services, the great value of science. We've developed vaccines within a year against a new virus. And we've, we've seen the great disparities that, again, COVID has revealed these. And we know that what global health is really about at the heart of global health is equity and social justice. So what a great time to come into the field, take on COVID and help us build back better in dealing with some of the great challenges ahead of us just to take one, and that's climate change, which we've sort of put on the back burner a little bit, but I think very soon as we build back from COVID, we need to put at the top of our agenda in the field of global health. So with that, I think we'll bring this podcast to a close. I like your closing message. Global health is all about equity and social justice. That rings a really big bell close to my heart. So thank you again for sharing your stories with us. I hope our listeners have enjoyed hearing them as much as I did. And to everyone, be curious, be brave, be safe.